Thanks, everyone, very, very much for coming out tonight. It's uh, lovely to have a really strong group, and, and, and thanks to Art Rage for hosting it in such a lovely place. It's uh, always wonderful to give a talk in a place like this. And uh, I, too, would like to acknowledge that we are on indigenous land that was taken forcefully and to thank the indigenous people who lived here and were stewards of this land for thousands and thousands of years before first contact. As uh, Ed just mentioned, I was living in Alaska from 1996 onwards for about 10 years and was a social worker in between climbing seasons. And then during summers, I was up on Denali climbing, guiding, and then finally volunteering as a rescue ranger. And I bring that up because I started my journalism work as a war reporter, but the seeds of this book were planted in 1996, the first time I laid eyes on Denali, because for me, seeing that mountain, it was love at first sight, which didn't make a whole bunch of sense for a guy born and raised in Houston, Texas, but there you have it. Uh, Enough so that I moved up there, oriented my whole life just around how can I be up in the mountains and learning to climb and then getting into it. And and I mention all this because it's a really important part of the story and it's a really important part of this book for me. And it's a really important part of the message that I want to bring to you tonight. So I was on Denali when the Iraq war was on. I remember being up in the mountains, first the Chugach range outside of Anchorage during the invasion, listening to it on the radio sick to my stomach, horrified, like probably just about everybody in this room. And then the next month going up on Denali, as I did usually for May and June, and having the same experience. And I can remember being high up on the mountain and just being glued to the radio and wondering what else to do. I didn't know what else to do. I had done what probably a lot of people had done of the usual things we're supposed to do to express our dissent towards the government to no avail. And so something came to me up there, which was, you need to just go. I'm passionate about people having accurate information, and so I decided to just go to Iraq and start writing about it. That was a little bit over 16 years ago, and here I am. But what I found in Iraq, once I really caught my stride as a journalist and went into Fallujah during the April siege in 2004, and writing about what was happening, and the gory details. Because I think it's important to know the gory details, and I'm going to talk about some of those regarding the climate crisis tonight. And in Fallujah, I was literally watching with my own eyes American snipers intentionally shooting women, elderly, and young people. And one thing they did, it's, it's horrific, but it's important to mention to show that things don't change in regards to how the sledgehammer of empire operates. One tactic they used was young boys, usually between the ages of 12 and 16, snipers were intentionally shooting them in between the legs. This was one tactic used, along with many other terroristic tactics used by the American military in Fallujah. And... A big lesson for me was writing for lefty outlets that I wrote a story about this and I couldn't get it published. And so that's when I learned I had to go further to the fringe of the lefty outlets to publish things like this. And I bring that up because I've been having a similar experience regarding the climate crisis. I've been reporting on it now since 2010 and on a monthly basis, literally every single month since 2013. And so I wanted to bring that up because I think it's very, very important for us, as as hard as the information is that I'm going to share tonight in regards to what's happening to the planet and, and what's already baked into the system, we have to have an accurate map. You know, and so the analogy that I like to use is if, if you're planning a camping trip or a backcountry trip, do you not want the most accurate map available to plan your trip, even if it means you're going to have to take a different route or, or not be able to go to a certain area or make some pretty dramatic changes? Of course you're going to want an accurate map. So in 2013, I wrote an article that where I essentially connected all the dots on the climate crisis 
and understood how far along we already were. And for me, uh, it was one thing to report on just what's happening to the oceans or just what's happening to the forests or what's happening to the glaciers around the world. But then when they were pulled all together, and I interviewed several scientists about the bigger picture and feedback loops and things, I basically had a very full-on experience of going back through the depression stage of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross five stages of grief. Now, obviously, as a reporter, I was at least largely beyond the denial stage and a lot of the time beyond the anger stage. But the depression after that article really, really was too much to bear. And for about three months, I literally, I was, I was living in Doha, Qatar, writing for Al Jazeera English and was on my couch in a fetal position, literally, at times, really understanding, okay, we are in it deep. Now what? And then, of course, I had to learn, you know, okay, where do we go from here after taking this in? And I wrote an article on this almost a year ago, and I want to just read from the beginning of it tonight. Just for context, one thing that I have struggled with, knowing people personally, some in my own family that don't believe climate change or support Trump or support these people. And one thing that I've struggled with even recently, especially looking at how far along we are in the crisis and then having this administration where it's as though these people are literally just trying to kill the planet as fast as they can and struggling to understand this, especially looking at they're married, they have kids, they have grandkids how does that work? How does that just doesn't compute to me? You know, stepping out of the overtly political analysis of that, which most people in here are probably familiar with, I finally came across through an indigenous elder friend something that helped me understand it better, and I want to just read a a few paragraphs of what I wrote about this. Uh, It's from a story I wrote called For Native Americans, History Continues to Repeat Itself. Professor Emeritus and former chair of the Native American Studies at University of California, Davis, Jack Forbes, writes in his book, Columbus and Other Cannibals, of what he calls the sickness of exploitation or the Waitiko cannibal disease. Cannibalism, as Forbes defines it, is the consuming of another's life for one's own private purpose or, or profit. Forbes notes, Imperialism and exploitation are forms of cannibalism and, in fact, are precisely those forms of cannibalism which are most diabolical or evil. He adds, few, if any, societies on the face of the earth have been as avaricious, cruel, violent, and aggressive as have certain European populations. Native Americans experienced Waitiko in brutal fashion not long after, quote, first contact, end quote, with Europeans. I also interviewed a man for this piece named Harold Dick Jr. He's a 72-year-old Chiricahua Apache, lives in southern New Mexico. And he said of this, Europeans slaughtered during one short period alone 50 million buffalo because thousands of us relied on them. And in less than a generation, they annihilated them. And they take pride in this and take pictures of the dead buffalo, like it takes a real man to shoot an animal with a high-powered rifle from far away. He added that when Native Americans talk about great people, they usually speak of medicine people. Quote, but all the greats the whites ever write about were great at destruction and subjugating people. So for me, that has helped me to understand the fact that these people in these positions of power, usually white men, almost all white men, We know that they're fossil fuel funded. We know about the Koch brothers. We understand all of this. But I think we need to go deeper than that, which is despite all of the political and the financial reasons and how real politic is operating in this country today, that from Jack Forbes' perspective, these people are basically sociopaths. They're a danger to themselves and others, even people in their own family and their loved ones and they're a danger to the planet, and they need to be treated accordingly. And I think that needs to be factored in a little later in the talk and during the Q&A when we start talking about where do we go from here. So what I did for this book, much like what I did for this book, it was essentially, I didn't think about it consciously, but it was basically the same formula, which is I want to go to the front lines and really see what's going on 
and taste it and touch it and feel it and write about it as, as, in as personal way as possible, as well as go with the leading scientists I could find studying those particular areas. And ideally scientists that, that had long-term intimate relationships with the areas they were studying. And so I went to South Florida for sea level rise, back to Denali and other places in Alaska and Glacier National Park for glaciers, the Amazon rainforest, several forests across the West to write about what's happening to trees and to Australia, to the Great Barrier Reef to write about what's happening to reefs. And then two different locations to really focus in on how indigenous populations are being impacted. Because as we know, like other crises around the planet, those that are taking it, usually the first and the hardest on the chin are indigenous populations, uh, people of color, and the poor. So where I would like to take us first is to Australia. And I want to start with just talking about the magnificence of this area. The Great Barrier Reef is 1,400 miles long. It's the largest reef on the planet, visible from space. It's home to more than 1,500 species of fish, six of the world's seven species of threatened marine turtles, 30 marine mammals, 134 species of sharks and rays, and 411 types of hard coral in one-third of the world's soft corals. Right before I went there, I stopped off in Guam where I met with Lori Raimondo. She's a professor at the University of Guam Marine Lab, and she'd lived out there since 2004. Dr. Raimondo is also co-author of the 2016 Paris Climate Agreement. So what's happening with coral and, and why I wanted to highlight it in this book is important for a lot of reasons. And what we're seeing now and what I think probably many of you have already read in the news is these major coral bleaching events that are happening around the planet. So for those that aren't as familiar with it, coral bleaching, you know, coral exists in a certain temperature range. And the, the beautiful colors the coral gets are from algae that the coral gets its protein from. And when the, when the water, however, gets too warm, that algae becomes toxic to the coral. The coral ejects it, and then it turns basically bone bleach white, and that means it's in the process of starving. If the water cools back down within three to four weeks, typically the coral can take that algae back in and it can survive. If it doesn't cool down enough in time, then the coral will die. And that's what has started to become very prevalent as the oceans warm further and further. And so I talked to Dr. Raimondo about this, and I just want to read a short bit out of the book of, of what she said. Because she has been a, a coral ecologist out there for a long time, and she's been monitoring water quality, coastal development, the overabundance of crown of thorn starfish that can decimate reefs, and overfishing out there over the last decade. These have all caused coral loss, but these elements have stabilized. And then she said, but warming water has all of a sudden exploded in the bleaching. In the history of anyone looking at this, we've never had bleaching events as severe as the last couple of years. She's talking about Guam, but this applies to Australia as well. She sees the massive problems besetting Guam's reefs as a confluence of two large bleaching events in a row, followed by low tide exposure of corals for successive months, then a coral disease outbreak in 2016 that she thinks it is in part at least uh, to the warming waters. We don't know how many populations that affected, but there are at least two that we know a disease just wiped them out in one week. We don't know what causes a lot of these. Some flare up, the coral gets stressed, maybe from heat, and something that wasn't necessarily a problem then becomes a problem. There is a National Oceanic and Atmospheric report that was published in 2011 that said the current trajectory of pollution, warming oceans, climate disruption, everything going as it was, fossil fuel emissions, that there would likely be no coral, no functioning coral reefs left anywhere on the planet by 2050. And I talked to Lori and her colleague out there, Dave Burdick. They work together at University of Guam. He's also a coral biologist. And I asked them about that report. She says the study is evidence that pristine reefs around the world are no longer going to be areas of protection since oceanic heating is now a global phenomenon. 
Quote, we are finding that reefs living under anthropogenic stresses for many years have already lost their more sensitive coral species. And the ones that are there now are already the tough bastards, as she put it. And when reefs have lower diversity, there is less ecological redundancy. Hence, they are more likely to collapse. She and her colleague Burdick both believe that Guam's coral reefs carry a message for the world. The Chamorro people, the indigenous people of the Mariana Islands, including Guam, have a strong cultural affinity with the reefs and the fish they provide. Loss of the reefs would mean a critical loss of identity for the Chamorro. Quote, these are reefs that thousands of people use for fishing or cultural identity and recreational use, and these are all going to be significantly threatened. The year before I spoke with Burdick and Raimondo, Guam had seen 1.5 million visitors, with the majority of them tourists attracted to the crystal clear water and beaches. Quote, people coming here are going to know structure versus rubble, color versus no color, fish versus no fish, Raimondo says. Over time, all that is going to go away if there is no coral and there are no fish. From there, I went on to Australia and the Great Barrier Reef. I had been there before in the past, almost 20 years prior diving, and was struck there, like other places I went working on this chapter, like Guam and Palau, at the dramatic reduction in the number of fish and sharks on the reef, as well as a notable difference in the amount of healthy coral that I saw. So I went out onto the Great Barrier Reef with a man named John Rumney. He's actually a salty American waterman who's lived in Australia for almost 50 years. And he had founded an NGO called Great Barrier Reef Legacy with an Australian marine scientist named Dr. Dean Miller. When I met John Rumney, uh, he's uh, very sparkly blue eyes, especially when he talks about the reef. He's usually running around in a bathing suit because he's almost always out on the reef. He's always very excited to talk about it. And when I met him and started talking about him and got the initial, okay, who are you? What, what are you doing out here? You know, where are you from? Where do you live? And he says, I live on the reef, not in Australia. He wanted to point that out. So I want to read a couple of pages to finish this uh, bit talking about the reefs from my time out on the reef with both of these guys. So we went out on a snorkeling tour to the outer reef. They were showing me different sites, and that's the setting of this. After about an hour at one site, we climbed back into the boat, which then takes us a short way to a site that John Rumney refers to as SNO, which is right near the outer reef. He is excited to get into the water. This area used to be at 110% wellness, he says, smiling as he pulls on his gear. I know that's not real scientific to say that, but we used to have life growing atop life here. But this area was also impacted last year, so I'm curious to see what condition it's in today. We slip into the clear water, snorkel a short way over to the shallower reef area, and I'm taken aback by the decimation. At least half of the coral is already dead, covered in slimy algae or bleached white. At one point, I swim for five minutes straight and see nothing but dead or bleached coral. I look over at Rumney. He had raved about this spot, but I'm unable to find an area that isn't, at least in part, bleached, dead, or covered in algae. Even in the deeper areas, many of which remain largely intact, still have signs of bleaching. During a visit to the reef in 1996, I'd taken part in a liveaboard scuba diving trip, which found me diving 20 times over multiple days across the reef. Compared to what I'd seen then, there was notably less coral in many areas, and as in Palau, far fewer fish. I swim on. The coral scape still holds an austere beauty. Fill in the vibrant colors and that myriad fish of all species and sizes, and you'd have what it used to be. I swim along in dismay. The odds are low I'll return to Australia anytime soon, and since it is unlikely to survive another 13 years, I am effectively saying goodbye to the Great Barrier Reef. Back in the boat, Dean Miller says, it's at least half gone, even way out here. We eat lunch while the boat motors to the third site, which Rumney refers to as Mojo. I slip into the water alone, just wanting one-on-one -on -one time with the reef. Thankfully, this site is in comparatively good shape. The colors of the coral shimmer. Schools of fish abound. Giant underwater islands of coral stretch tens of feet toward the surface, with coral growing atop coral, life growing on life. 
giant blue stag coral grows straight out of 10-foot-wide brown table coral. It is stupendous. The water crackles with the sounds of fish biting coral and the clicking sounds of shrimp. Yet even here I come across dead zones. As I enter one, my surroundings fall silent. The bottom holds larger swaths of long-dead stag coral covered in slimy, deep brown algae. Conscious that my time on the reef is limited, I swim out of the dead area and find another vibrant area. I stay there alone, soaking it all in. I feel time slipping away. Giant clams, anemone, table corals growing atop table corals, sponges, starfish, hard and soft corals, all the colors of the spectrum fill the water. My heart swells and I never want to leave. I dive down deep, holding my breath as long as I can until I become lightheaded, then surface again for more air. I do it again, swimming down 20, 30, 40 feet in places, equalizing my ears as I dive two, three, four times as I swim downward so I can be among the coral, the bigger fish, and the occasional reef shark. I get to be part of their world for those rare, precious, magical moments. Finally, I hear the faint sound of the horn from the boat, signaling us to return aboard so we can head back to land. By the end of 2017, that bleaching event that I was witnessing firsthand, some scientists said the Great Barrier Reef was damaged beyond repair and could no longer be saved. Others declared the reef to be in its, quote, terminal stage. A plan by the Australian government to protect the reef was deemed, quote, no longer achievable. The year 2017 ended up being the hottest year ever recorded for Earth's oceans, making that year and the four before it the top five hottest years on record for the oceans. The bleaching event in 2017 ended up striking 30% of the reef, and then last year, 2018, that bleaching event took out another 20% of the reef. And the leading coral scientists in Australia estimate that the reef has less than 10 years left. I want to step back and give some broad brushstrokes of the macro of how far along we are in the climate crisis now. After nine years of in-depth reporting and going to these different places around the world with a lot of the leading scientists in these areas and watching consistently the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change projections be shown for what they are, their worst-case projections aren't even keeping a pace with observational reality. What I see is that it's far too late to avert a global environmental catastrophe. Obviously, stopping it is off the table. Mitigating it is still out there in the ether as a remote possibility, but adaptation is what is upon us now. 2018 was the fourth warmest year ever recorded, with the only warmer years being 2015, 2016, and 2017. This past June was the hottest June ever recorded. Last month, July, was the hottest month ever recorded, period, on Earth since record-keeping began. We're currently in the middle of what is on track to be the warmest decade since record-keeping began. We're already in the sixth mass extinction event that industrial civilization has caused, We're injecting CO2 into the atmosphere at a rate 10 times faster than what occurred during the Permian mass extinction event 252 million years ago that annihilated 90% of life on Earth. Our current extinction rate is 1,000 times faster than normal and is faster than that of the Permian mass extinction. The oceans have absorbed 93% of all the heat humans have added to the atmosphere, half of that since 1997. If the oceans had not absorbed that heat, global atmospheric temperatures right now would be 97 degrees Fahrenheit hotter. Today's CO2 levels at 415 parts per million in the atmosphere are already in accordance with what has historically brought about steady state temperatures on the planet between 4 and 7 C higher than they are right now, depending on where you are on the planet. What that essentially means is that the injury has already been been done, i.e. this much CO2 in the atmosphere. We're just starting to watch the planet respond to what has been done to it. Temperatures have thus far increased 1.1 C over pre-industrial baseline levels. The oceans are now already literally overheating, deoxygenating, and acidifying. 
Insects, which are essential for the proper functioning of all of Earth's ecosystems, as they are food for other creatures, pollinators, and recyclers of nutrients, are in big trouble, according to recent studies. And to cut to the chase, without insects, humans simply cannot survive. They pollinate at least 75% of the food that we eat, among all these other critical roles in ecosystems. The studies that I mentioned inform us that we are losing 2.4% of global insect biomass annually, which means in less than 100 years that the current trajectory of loss, uh, assuming there is no acceleration, there will be no more insects. Since just 1970, 60% of all mammals, birds, fish, and reptiles are gone. What would we call it if there had been a 60% reduction of humans since 1970? Several of the scientists I spoke with for the book said that if we had best-case scenario, full stop of all CO2 emissions on a dime right now, we have a minimum of 3 degrees C warming already baked into the system. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, their worst-case temperature projection scenario by 2100 is between 4 and 5 C. There's been several, actually there's been several scientists come out very outspoken against the IPCC, making it very clear. Two of them actually IPCC authors that I've interviewed myself saying this is not pure science. It's a heavily politicized organization. It's well known within the IPCC and you can actually read it in their assessment and how they figure their projections yourself that it's essentially consensus science. I use the term extremely loosely because how it works out is that the leading polluters, i.e. the U.S., Russia, China, India, etc., can weigh in on the projections and basically push them to the lower end because it suits their purposes better. So it's not a scientific organization, and this is not good science being used in the IPCC projections. And this is why consistently, as I mentioned earlier, the, their worst-case projections, like right now for sea ice, literally as we speak, the sea ice melting is far above the IPCC's worst-case projections from when they said it would be right now. So their worst-case temperature scenario is between 4 to 5 C increased by 2100. The International Energy Agency, a pro-fossil fuel organization, has stated that preserving our current economic paradigm could guarantee a 6 C rise in Earth's average temperature before 2050. Shell and BP analysts expect the globe to be as much as 5C warmer, also by mid-century. So it is clear to me that that feeling I had when I wrote that article in 2013 and had what I've heard other people refer to as my fetal position moment of connecting all the dots, that we are genuinely in free fall and that we are off the climate precipice because we're in a nonlinear situation of climatic disruptions and their effects and we're locked into a course for uncontrollable levels of climate disruption that will bring starvation, destruction, mass migration, disease, and war here, as it already is in so many other places around the globe. There can no longer be any question that this life as we know it is ending. So this feeling right now in the room, after hearing and taking in all of that, that is essentially where I arrived when I got to the end of the book and came to the conclusion and was trying to figure out basically how the hell do I conclude this book? Where do, you, where do you go from here? How do we talk about this? What do we do with this? And so I had to start searching, not in the climate realm, not in the science realm, but more in the philosophical realm and in the spiritual realm. And thankfully, uh, some certain things happened in my life that, that helped this process along that I, I really can't take credit for. One thing that happened was I came across a lecture of a, a guy named Stephen Jenkinson. He's a, a storyteller, a Canadian man who had worked in the palliative care industry for three decades. And he wrote a book called Die Wise, which is essentially about Western dominant culture's aversion to the acceptance of death as part of life. And he actually shared some, I think, very helpful things about grieving and the climate crisis during a lecture he gave at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Part of that, he was talking about the climate crisis, and I'd like to just read some of his words. The question is not, are we going to fail? 
The question is, how, he said. The question is, what shall be the manner of our inability to care for what was entrusted to us? The question is our manner of failing. He went on to say, grief requires us to know the time we're in. The great enemy of grief is hope. Hope is the four-letter word for people who are willing to know things for what they are. Our time requires us to be hope-free, to burn through the false choice of being hopeful and hopeless. They are two sides of the same con job. Grief is required to proceed. Another thing that happened literally as I was working on the conclusion of the book is a man named Stan Rushworth, a Native American elder of Cherokee descent, was brought into my life. And we started having some long conversations and spending a lot of time together. And he reminded me of the difference between the settler colonialist mentality of what are my rights, which is essentially the dominant culture mentality, versus a more indigenous perspective which is that we're born onto the earth with primary obligations. The first one is to serve and be stewards of the earth. The second is to serve and protect and make decisions based on what's best for future generations of humans and all species. And so for me, when I get up each day and I approach my day from that perspective, I have my work cut out for me. There's, there's no shortage of things that I can do for the planet and for other species and other people on the planet. If I can't think of anything, then that's a failure of my own imagination. And if I approach it as service work instead of, well, if I do X, will I get Y? Why take this action if things look so bleak and hopeless and so much is stacked against us? That'd be the same mentality of being on the Titanic and having a chance to help somebody and just saying, well, what's the point? We're all going down anyway. So it comes down to moral obligations and doing the right action because it's the right action. And it was around then that I came across a great quote from Vaclav Havel where he says, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. So I'd like to read a few pages in conclusion now of some things that have that also came to me through Stan Rushworth that have helped me tremendously and I want to pass on to you. The first is a story that was shared with him by his elder, Dr. Daryl Wilson, who was born into the Pitt River Nation of Northeastern California. Wilson tells of Mis Misa, a small but powerful spirit that inhabits Akuyet, what the white man named Mount Shasta, a large volcano in Northern California. Mis Misa is a spirit force that balances the earth with the universe and the universe with the earth. Wilson says that Akuyet is, quote, the most necessary of all the mountains upon earth, for Mis Misa keeps the earth the proper distance from the sun and keeps everything in its proper place, when wonder and power stir the universe with a giant yet invisible canoe paddle. Mis Misa keeps the earth from wandering away from the rest of the universe. It maintains the proper seasons and the proper atmosphere for life to flourish as earth changes seasons on its journey around the sun, end quote. The mountain, the story tells us, must be worshipped because Mis Misa dwells deep within it. To climb the mountain with a pure heart and with real resolve and to communicate with, quote, all of the light and all of the darkness of the universe is to place your spirit in a direct line from the songs of Mis Misa to the heart of the universe. While in this posture, the spirit of man slash woman is in perfect balance and harmony, end quote. For as long as Mis Misa's instructions are followed with sincerity, society will be sustained. Its inhabitants will survive for the long term. Quote, the most important of all the lessons, it is said, is to be so quiet in your being that you constantly hear the soft singing of Mis Misa. However, the story also warns that by not listening to Mis Misa's song, the song will fade. Mis Misa will depart, quote, and the earth and all of the societies upon earth will be out of balance and the life therein vulnerable to extinction. So when Stan shared that story with me, all of a sudden I realized 
this is why a guy from Houston, Texas has always had this love or this crazy love affair with the mountains and why since I basically was a young adult have always oriented my life around living in proximity to the mountains and spending as much time as I can up in them. And so the story I shared at the beginning about me being on a mountain and then getting a, a pull to just go to a rock. And the same thing happened with this book. I was at a point I didn't know what project to take on next, and I was just going into the mountains a whole bunch, and this idea came to me. And then here I am, and everything that kind of worked in my favor to have this happen, the same forces that worked in my favor to keep me alive several times in Iraq when I was over there, I believe that happened because I was doing service work for the planet. And so my point is the importance of going into that place of deep listening that Wilson talks about in this story, that uh, I believe the fundamental core cause of the climate crisis is industrialized humans' fundamental disconnection from the planet. And before we start talking about what to do next or how am I going to react, I think for me personally, I've had to start with, I need to reconnect back into the earth as deeply and regularly as possible. And it is that part, you know, as I come to the end of my talk before we go into a question and answer session, it's usually obligatory for the speaker to offer hope or give people some things to do. And I want to end a little bit differently because I think the scope of not just the climate crisis, but the political crisis, the everything crisis. I mean, whatever your cause is that you work on, whether it's this or racism or sexism or gun violence or anti-militarism or anti-drones or, you know, go down the line. We are at a crisis point in everything. And so I, I, everything needs attention uh, more than it ever has before. And so rather than trying to give people things to do, I want to I wanna end with reading a little bit about something that Stan also shared with me. He teaches critical thinking and indigenous literature at Cabrillo College in Aptos, California, which is a a small town just south of Santa Cruz on the coast of California. And Rushworth has regularly invited indigenous elders to speak with his classes, especially about what is the right relationship to the earth. And his students always ask the elders, who always get up there and take the full three hours and talk nonstop, they say, well, what can we do? And so one elder, Henry Tyler, an Arapaho elder, would stand and point with the fingers to his head and say nothing for several minutes. And then he would say, use this. And he would smile. Everything, this is Stan, everything that he had said for the previous three hours would provide tools for those who chose to respond. He gave so much to reflect upon that a finger to the head was a powerful statement. CeeLo Blackcrow, a Lakota Sundance leader and elder, would also smile and say, think about it. That's up to you. I can't tell you what to do. Educate yourself, then you decide. Of this, Rushworth added, like Uncle Henry, listening to him for three hours would give an incalculable amount of information and food for reflection. The common message these men offer, Rushworth believes, is that each person must come fully into their own agency and from that place decide upon their proper course of action. Otherwise, simply following the lead of someone else would entail a lack of the kind of conviction needed for these times. And I think now, given what we're seeing politically, the fascism that's happening, not just in this country, but other Western countries, and where the world is going, and how intense these times are, and how much more intense we all know they're going to get on all these levels, on all these issues. These are, I think, really critical, very deeply personal questions. Because I think we're going to get to a point where some of us are going to be making decisions about, am I going to put my life on the line for this? Am I going to go stand here and take a bullet? Am I going to go 
take an action that, that could jeopardize my safety or the people I love's safety. That these times are, they're already upon large segments of the population and they're going to be upon, I think, all of us sooner rather than later. And in order to make that decision, that's where, for me, when I've made those decisions based on going to Iraq and decisions on whether or not I, w- I was going to go into Fallujah, those decisions had to come from a deep place of commitment that I only got from going out and essentially doing what Stan's uh, story about Misa Misa finally articulated to me and showed me that's what I was actually doing, was listening to Misa Misa and then following the instructions that came and being quiet enough, consistently enough, and really listening. So wherever that is, whether that's in a place of meditation or if you're a nature person like me, it's up in the mountains or the rivers or the ocean or wherever. But the, the quest, I want to leave you with just two questions to end this because I think this is the start and, in a sense, the ending point for all of us right now is where is it that you go to listen to Mis Misa? And when was the last time that you went there to listen? Thank you. I was asked to talk a little bit more about what's happening in the Arctic and Alaska. And yeah, so the book starts and ends on Denali. And I spent a whole chapter just on glaciers and then a whole chapter going to St. Paul Island and the Pribilofs and the Bering Sea, talking about what's happening to the Anungan people there as the food web of the Pacific is collapsing and their ability to conduct subsistence living, harvesting different birds. And certainly the fur seal is in great jeopardy. And then I spent time up in Utkiagvik, which is the native name for the town formerly known as Barrow, which is the northernmost town in Alaska. And I went up there to write about what's happening to the, the terrestrial permafrost and the subsea permafrost, which contains the methane hydrates. And so glaciers, just briefly... Glaciers are melting away apace. I mean, most people here are probably aware of what's happened in Alaska, which literally is record wildfires as we speak, literally. I was looking at the news earlier, and all across the state right now, just massive wildfires, and especially even up in the Arctic Circle, unprecedented amounts of wildfires of literally the tundra burning in other parts, and uh, record CO2 emissions from those specific wildfires in the Arctic. So a critical thing to understand when we talk about feedback loops is the permafrost contains more carbon, more CO2 equivalent by far than what we've already emitted into the atmospheres. And it's melting as of right now, actually, or a study that just came out, I was just writing about it earlier, it's already thawing at a pace that it wasn't expected to hit until 2070. So it's far, far ahead. That means that feedback loop of as it thaws and it releases that CO2 into the atmosphere, which, of course, contributes to further warming, which causes it to thaw more. So that's a feedback loop. The Arctic sea ice, for the first time in recorded history, there is no Arctic sea ice in Alaska waters. So that's 150 miles north of the Alaska coast. There's no sea ice. This is a big deal because... The sea ice, and, and this is the feedback loop that probably most people are, have been aware of for a long time, it reflects sunlight back into the atmosphere. As it recedes, it reflects less sunlight, which instead goes in to the exposed dark ocean, which absorbs it and warms and melts the sea ice faster, which then reflects less, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Another way to understand feedback loops, I interviewed a USGS scientist, Dr. Dan Fagri at Glacier National Park, and he said, basically, the more something happens, the more something happens, which in, in this respect makes sense. And so the subsea permafrost in the Arctic, in the shallow seabeds around the whole Arctic Ocean, contain massive amounts of what are called methane hydrates, which is essentially methane trapped in tiny bubbles in the ice as those waters warm, as the, ice rec- the sea ice recedes and expose more of the ocean to warming, then that is already being released up. And I cite one scientist in the book, Natalia Shakova. She used to be with UA Fairbanks, and she published a study quite a few years ago, actually, warning basically a methane 
bomb. She called it a methane burp where you could literally have a 50 gigaton burp of methane in a matter of minutes as all that keeps getting exposed like the eastern Siberian shelf or in the Barents Sea, etc. And she basically said that could happen at any time, which would probably cause an immediate increase, a near immediate increase in a matter of single digit years of one to three or four C temperature increase for the planet. I interviewed another scientist who's been affiliated with NASA, Dr. Ira Leifer, who's a methane expert. And he actually had used NASA satellites to track methane around the Arctic for years and years and years and still is. And he published a study already back in 2012, I believe is, is the date on that one. And the normal background rate of methane plumes coming up from the seabed, because there is a normal background rate, is I think around three to 5,000 over a 1,000 square kilometer area. And he had already tracked a 1,000 square kilometer area in the Barents Sea that he had logged 60 million methane plumes. So point is, is it's already happening The question is, when does it speed up faster and do we have a major release all at once? So these are the things of most concern in the Arctic. And then moving over to Greenland, right now we had a day recently, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago now, where it set a record melt day for one day. It was 12.5 billion tons of water in one day. Another way to think about that, it was so much melting in Greenland that that one day contributed, I believe it was a a tenth of a millimeter to sea level rise for the planet. I mean, a tenth of a millimeter doesn't sound like a whole lot, but for the planet in one day. That is how fast things are happening. In Greenland, it used to be unthinkable. Well, if all of it melts, that's just over 20 feet of global sea level rise. It used to be unthinkable that that was possible. Okay, part of it, sure. Now, more and more scientists are saying... Probably all of it, the question's just when. And then I'll touch on glaciers real quick. So the short news about glaciers is that, um, as Dr. Dan Fagery said at Glacier National Park, essentially we're on a trajectory to have no more functional glaciers in that park by 2030. So under 11 years from now. And then he cited a study, which I have in the book, the contiguous 48 probably no glaciers by 2100 anywhere. And I live in Washington state, so that's pretty shocking when I get to look at Mount Rainier and there's over 100 glaciers in Olympic National Park, which is basically my backyard, and Cascades National, North Cascades National Park, no more glaciers. And then if we talk about what that means around the rest of the world, another study that I, I like to cite, the Hindu Kush region of the Himalaya, major ice field there, major glaciation, It's the head of several of Asia's major rivers, serves water, drinking water and irrigation water for 1.5 billion people. Recent studies show that area could be largely ice-free by 2100. And that means most of the water in those rivers is gone or extremely, extremely reduced. We can't live where there's no water. So where do those 1.5 billion people go? And then what happens to the areas where they go? Where's that water and food come from? Where do they live, et cetera, et cetera. So there are these cascading effects that we all need to start thinking about when we think, you know, we just think about what's happening because all these environmental factors have very, very real impact on us. So there's uh, several chapters in the book on that, but thanks for bringing that up. Mis Misa, and, you know, these obviously indigenous stories are meant metaphorically. Mis Misa is a small but powerful spirit force that lives inside Akuyet, the mountain that many people know as Mount Shasta. And it's a spirit force that sings, and that singing is what keeps the seasons happening as they should, and and it balances everything on earth and keeps everything in harmony. It keeps the earth the right distance from the moon, and everything in the universe in balance and in harmony. And that Singing is contingent upon people, uh, another way Stan put it, was comporting ourselves in the right way. That if you're going to go climb the mountain, i.e. live your life in a certain way, and listening very quietly and closely, which is the most important part of the story, that you have to comport yourself the right way and behave honorably and with integrity in order to really hear that. 
which means living in balance, doing good service work, et cetera, et cetera. If people stop listening, i.e. comporting themselves the right way, then Mis Misa will stop singing and everything will go out of balance and life on earth vulnerable to extinction. And so it's critical, the listening. First, I want to address geoengineering because there's been some people writing about this as though it's some sort of a solution. All the scientists I've spoken with about it uh, are scared to death of it. And I think the hubris and the conceitedness and the human-centeredness of it and the insanity is off the charts. I mean, essentially, the climate crisis is geoengineering. We have geoengineered this by changing how much CO2 is in the atmosphere, changing the temperatures and the acidity level of the oceans. So we've geoengineered our way into this mess, and some people think somehow we can literally tweak this and that on the earth or in the clouds or dumping shavings in the ocean or particulate in the high atmosphere to buy us a little bit more time. And all the scientists I've spoken with about this think it's absolute insanity. You're going to find plenty that support it. I know some that did think it was crazy and then now are supporting it because they understand that we're already off the cliff and if we at least have one play left with a Hail Mary, we should at least throw the Hail Mary even if the, cat, the, the consequences could be even more catastrophic. You know, one person in particular thinks we need to do everything we can to refreeze that Arctic sea ice because we cannot let the methane major releases happen. Once that does, it, then it's truly over. I understand that, the survival instinct, but I think, you know, going in and, and, and tweaking Mother Earth yet again is, is, is not going to be a good idea. And as far as looking at our own lives and making our own fundamental changes and question. I think it is. It's time to question everything. I mean, you know, it's, I, I joke about, hey, here we are in the apocalypse. But, you know, another way to use that word is essentially means the great revealing or pulling back of the curtain. And everything is up now. Yeah, I mean, the silver lining of Trump is all of these systemic, huge problems that have been in this country from first contact on, you know, a country built on genocide and slavery, and then everything that's come with that, and the denial of those, and then everything that's come with that, all of these issues that are up have to be addressed. And that's why it's not a cop-out, but I feel like the, the best, I'll, I'll tell you why I keep ending with the Mies Mies story, and it's this, and I'm going to get borderline a little bit woo-woo here, but the earth in indigenous thinking is obviously a living being and she is part of us and we are part of her and if we all in theory go out and listen very very diligently and comport ourselves the right way and then we get those messages of here's what I feel very strongly that I need to do whatever it is then the earth is the organizing factor. And we're each going to have our own specific task, custom built for us and what we do and what we're good at. And then that's what we're supposed to go do. Because all of these things need to be addressed and everything needs to be questioned and most things need to be changed. And I think this is that moment. And it's going to be up to each one of us doing everything that we possibly can. And for me now, it means going into another project that I'm working on with Stan and working with young people. Because for me, putting everything I have into helping them and preparing them and doing what I can to support them, that's my calling right now. And that's a new thing for me because I'm basically getting out of journalism and that's what I'm going to start doing. And that's come again from my own listening, which I have to keep doing. So that's why I just keep encouraging people to do that. He brings up the business as usual continuing and people keeping buying bigger vehicles and emitting more CO2 mindlessly, etc. Some of them intentionally. That's why I like to bring up the Waitiko disease in my talks because it's the only way I can understand this because, you know, that person's so checked out that they won't think that, you know, I'm, ta I'm engaging in an action that ultimately is going to imperil my own life. I mean, they won't even think about that. But that's the reality of the situation when you understand how far along we are, what's happening on all these different levels. And so just to help understand it and what to do about those people, I don't know. I just, I just keep busy with my own work.
There's other countries that are starting to take adaptation measures that are... One example I like to use is, is uh, I live in um, Port Townsend, Washington. It's a small, very progressive community on the northeast tip of the Olympic Peninsula. And a lot of people there like to think, hey, you know, voted like 90% for Bernie during the primaries, during the lead up to 2016. And most people there understand the climate crisis and get it right for sure. Yet the best thing the city could do for sea level rise is the main street, aptly named Water Street, is at six feet elevation. That's where there's all these historic buildings and all these businesses that the town relies on for tourism, which is essentially one of its primary sources of income. And the best thing they could come up with was last summer engage in a project where they dump millions of dollars into tearing up Water Street, redoing the electrical and the sewage underneath it. If you look out to the west coast of Washington State, the Quinault tribe, President Fawn Sharp, who was elected in 2006 and is now in her fourth term, the second she got elected and, and knew what was going on with the climate, those two villages out there right at sea level, she immediately started moving them uphill to 100 feet elevation. Which of these makes more sense? And I think that calls into question the leadership, patriarchy, white privilege, think our money's going to protect us, all of this. So, I mean, those are two really, really good examples. And so I think solutions that are going to happen on a community level are going to be smaller or with an Indian tribe and things like that. I, I, I don't know of any nation states that are responding anywhere near the level of urgency that is, is needed right now. Obviously, you know, some countries in Europe are at least doing some better things, but it still falls far short. You know, I mean, the dominant system, it's a fossil fuel global capitalist economy. And it basically means the people pulling the levers of power now wouldn't make as much money or would have to move into something completely different. And the last drop of oil will be the most profitable. So they're not going to change unless they're forced to change. Why did I write the book and what did I kind of hope might happen as a result and who is my audience and what might move people. I wrote the book for an audience that already understands what's happening but that wanted to know more about it and, and people that maybe couldn't go. I mean, I was extremely lucky, fortunate, and privileged to go to all these places and get to, to see all this firsthand and write about it. So I wanted to bring these places to people who couldn't go there and give them a very visceral an emotional description of what it's like to see and feel this happening to these very important, majestic places on the planet. And my sole hope for the book was that people would read it and want to go back outside and just reconnect. Because I think what moves people is love and loving the planet. Not fear, not panic, not hate, but love. Like, if you have a kid, you know, I do not have any of my own children, but I just had a nephew, a 16-year-old nephew come up, and I got to spend four days with him and take him into the mountains and have some big talks with him. And I love this kid. And I said, I'm committed to do whatever I can to help you because he totally gets what's going on. And, and that is a moral obligation for me to go do. Again, damn the results, can't control them anyway, they're out of my hands, but what can I do in any realm to try to help in any way f for this kid and other children on the planet? I mean, how can you not see the student strikes and not be shaken and moved that, you know, these 17-year-old kids are like demanding that adults act like adults and take care of the damn planet? You know, it's absurd, but that's where we are. And so I want... Ideally, if people are just motivated by love for what they care about, whether the planet or whatever, whatever their most important political cause is, whatever it is, pick one of the thousand that's screaming in our face right now and go, go take action on it like our lives depend on it, because they do. So I, I think that's where I'm coming from. And on that note, I like to uh, try to slip into the Q&A another piece of writing from Stan this is called Earth Prayer, and I, I, it just feels like an appropriate time, and then I'll get more questions. Let us just see it simply. Enough to drink in spring's radiance, the yellow scotch broom against green fields. Allow our eyes to reach into the morning like fingers into wet grass, our tears falling into April's rain. We've been too long away, 
and the need is huge. Our desire unsteady in this time. Let the invisible wanting burst to the surface of our skin where we may know this world who holds us so dearly, even in the middle of our blindness and in the beginnings of our awakening. Let us lie face down in her beauty, feeding her with our gratitude. She is waiting. The question is essentially, what, what have the indigenous people that I've come into contact with while working on the book asked us to do? And one primary thing is to be allies. Another one is to bring attention to the fact that the country's built on genocide and slavery and actively work to overcome this denialism that's part of the dominant culture that tries to pretend like these things didn't happen and so much is still happening. That's a primary core thing. And another is essentially to act like our lives depend on it and take action like our lives depend on it and to understand that they as a people have already lived through a a genocide, a full-on genocide. And the fact is that as we saw at Standing Rock, that any real revolutionary change that's going to happen in the future is going to be led by women and indigenous people. That's just how it is, because that's how it was in the past, and that's what works. And as we know from so many of the tribal cultures in the past and present, being matrilineal and in some cases even matriarchal, and that the women made the decisions on to whether there was going to be a war or not and this kind of thing, and how far away the dominant culture is from that. So remembering things like that, and that's why for me, as I mentioned, my next project is working real close with Stan on a book to bring all of that out. So we're literally going around and interviewing Fawn Sharp, who I mentioned, the, the chief, the president of the Quinault tribe in Western Washington, people like her, young people, old people, people in community, people out on their own, but all indigenous. That's what I'm doing because I feel like, you know, these voices that have been silenced uh, can't, you know, those are the voices we need to be listening to and taking direction from. So the question is, uh, or, or the point is essentially, are the scientists that I've spoken with, are they talking about what might happen as things progress and then whether humans, are we going to make it or not? So is it human extinction or planetary extinction? Nobody knows for sure. I mean, there's plenty of scientists that have very strong opinions about this. There's some people that think, Absolutely, humans are going away no matter what. And I believed that for a long time, up until about a year ago. And then I, and I'm only speaking about myself here, but I personally had to recognize that was extremely arrogant. And we've not ever been here as a species, and that I couldn't say that for sure. Yes, you know, humans are for sure going to not make it through this. I even put in the book, it looks likely that humans will not make it through this, but I cannot say for sure. And as long as there's any X factor out there at all, if people are looking for hope, that would be it. That we just, there is this X factor of not knowing. And that's why we have to work like our lives depend on it, because they do. What I know from many of the scientists that I interviewed for this book is a lot of them believe that there's going to be a mass die off of humans, that there's going to be several people, several billion people going away. I mean, if you just look at what's already happening with our ability to grow food, shifting weather patterns, what's happening to the insects, that there's no way we're not going to be going through a very tight keyhole as a species. The question is how many of us make it through it. And then the long-term prognosis of the planet, something's going to continue. Somehow life is going to continue. I feel confident about that. But, you know, who am I to say and what's that going to look like? I don't think anybody can say that for sure. I, for a long time, had felt, and I'll, I'll work that question in, or that point into this, well, if we fail, you know, planet will be better off without us anyway. And, you know, someone, I'm 50 years old, I've had a great life, I've gotten to, you know, do so many things, and, but to my 16-year-old nephew, that's really not a good thing for me to say. Because he's asking, like, well, what about us? Or, you know, these young kids that are like, well, you know, what are we going to do? And I think that... Yeah, I mean, it might end up turning out that way, but I I just wouldn't feel comfortable saying that to a young kid right now, that with everything at play and everything that's at stake, that we owe our lives. I think I have to dedicate my life to those future generations now and and, and doing whatever I can to try to give them a chance. 
So I'll paraphrase that and probably put it back. Where does the anger come in to stop the people that are doing the damage in short? And I think obviously that's a realm that, you know, why I just tell people to go listen. I'm not, I have no answers for anybody other than my own. And, and I don't even get those myself. I listen for them. And so if people feel moved, well, that's their job then is to go after and stop those people doing the harm. Do it. What I hear is a lot of emotion around the fact of the gravity of the crisis and what's already baked into the system and what's coming down the tracks towards us that's inevitable. And to me, that's not, okay, F it, I'm going to just go party and burn, you know, fly and whatever. That means, to me, it means like another analogy I use, having spent a lot of time guiding on Denali. If I've got a team at high camp at 17,000 feet and I just got a radio report from NOAA that the biggest storm ever is coming at the mountain and we don't have time to descend and we've got X amount of food and fuel and we can dig in a camp and who's here and who can do what, I have to be very honest with people. Here's what's coming, guys. Odds are we won't even make it through this, but here's what we've got. So you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and, you know, and we're going to team together, and we're going to do everything we can to try to make it through this. You can't stop it. It's about accepting. That's what I said at the start. Do we not want an accurate map of where we are? And I have, as a journalist, done the best I can in this book to line out the most accurate map with the, most, the leading scientists in all these phases that I go into to show people Here's where we are. Now, that should bring a sense of clarity and purpose and urgency to everything that we do, to what my activism is, to who I love, to how, you know, am I wasting my time? Am I really doing something I don't really want to be doing? I think, in effect, it brings a crystallization of everything in my life that wasn't there before and a sense of urgency to act and take care of what's left and fight like I've never fought before.